I was recording. All right. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> Hi, Jack. <laughs> Hi, Andrew. Ah, that wasn't awkward. Um, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Wages of Cinema podcast. And uh, happy Valentine's Day. Yes, well, happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Yes, that already have been, but hopefully you had a nice dinner and got your beloved some chocolates and flowers. And hopefully you went to see Fifty Shades of Grey, because we have a lot to say about Fifty Shades of Grey tonight. I know, I have a lot to say about it, and frankly, I haven't seen it. Neither have I. Good, let's, let's have a high five for... High five for prejudging! Yes! Woo! High five for uninformed criticism. Although, right. I, although I have seen clips and I have read uh, lots of excerpts. From oh, you know what we should t- mention before um, before we get into get the into the main topic. thing? You were t- you were talking about a movie last time with Jennifer Lopez, and you brought up this very interesting. There was bit something of trivia. That, there was something I forgot to bring up. Uh, now, when I talked about now, what the was movie, the name of the movie? Well, the movie was called The Boy Next Door. Uh, And now I mentioned in the podcast that uh, Jennifer Lopez plays a classics professor. And then I pointed out that that's completely implausible. (laughs) Yes, that, well, I mean, on the one, now, you can teach stuff like the Odyssey and the Iliad in high school. It's just that there's not a specific class dedicated to just that. All right, but let's get beyond that. Let's say you accept Jennifer Lopez as a classics teacher and that she's teaching classics in a high school. Right. What comes next is... Explain this, Jack. Okay, what I forgot to mention in the movie, uh, and I might have featured... I don't know if I put... I don't think I used the clip in the podcast, but what happens in the movie, one of the things that the guy in the movie that's trying to seduce Jennifer Lopez does is he brings over for her a copy of the Iliad. But not fir- just any copy no, of the Iliad. No, not just any copy. A first edition <laughs> of the Iliad. Yes. In English. Uh, for Let the- that sink in, everyone. The Iliad, which has been around for thousands of years. I don't even know the original <laughs> date of first publication. It probably was not even published in an acceptable form until like 500 years ago. You see, this is the kind of joke that only academics can really a- laugh about because as soon as you sent me that, I laughed for a good five minutes <laughs> because uh, it was the kind of thing that when I saw it in the movie with my wife, we looked at that and thought, what? <laughs> because the Iliad, even in its first incarnation, it wasn't even written down. It was an oral poem. There you go. That people repeated to one another. Uh, so a first edition copy... Alright, never mind. Uh, yeah, exactly. Not to belabor the point, but this... It's just an example of poor screenwriting, basically. It's an, a really poor attempt at screenwriting, man. That's like... And I actually heard that... I read somewhere that the uh, screenwriter for the movie had came out and said that when she first presented her script, this didn't feature it. And the producer said, oh, we love your script. Oh, this is amazing. And lo and behold, they were full of crap. Well, well, the writer is not in charge of of the script. It's the director and then the actors. And the writer just accommodates (coughs) their needs. (coughs) (laughs) 
pack producers in. in. But, it's uh. <laughs> that's one of those things that we just I had to mention that because I feel remiss that. Um, and, oh, and by, and that's something else that I should bring up. Maybe when we get to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, there's also something similar to that. Should I should I just mention it now, or wait? Go ahead. It's not going to be a major part okay. of the conversation. Now, I mean, this is what I've heard in the movie. Uh, the main character, Christian Grey, gives the female protagonist, Anastasia Steele, a first edition copy of Test to Ubervilles. <laughs> because why not? It's Although, the thing is, in The Boy Next Door, the thing that makes it more hilarious is not just that it's a, quote, first edition copy of the Iliad, it's that he got it for a dollar at a garage sale. <laughs> <laughs> We can't make up this stuff, folks. It's an impossible object. It's like it's like finding the monkey's head in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You just want to snatch it and run away from a boulder. <laughs> I don't understand what you mean, but well, yeah. it's like when you say it's a like priceless object. It belongs in a museum. Exactly, it belongs in a museum, not in the clutches of a high school classics teacher. Um, uh, it's just, uh... Yeah. But anyway, let's move on and talk about some of the movies we saw this week. And speaking of uh, rather inane, crazy things, I'll start talking about Jupiter Ascending. All right. Now, I was very interested in this movie because uh, even when I first saw it, I re- the, well, the, the when trailer. I first saw the trailer for this, I realized it, it touched something of my inner teenager... The planet was seeded by a brass axe industries roughly 100,000 years ago. It's one of the most powerful dynasties in the universe. There are three primary heirs. The oldest is Belem. He's the one that controls this planet and wants you dead. I'm telling you, I'm nobody. You are royalty. Because this is the kind of movie that I would have... I would have run out to see in the theater if I was back when I was 15 or 16. Yeah. Well, and I, rec- I, and I recognize it. I'm like, yeah, this looks like something I'd enjoy. I mean, I know it's going to be garbage, but, <laughs> uh, you know, this is something that, that's kind of, that w- would have been special to me back in the day. Well, that I think is what the Wachowskis were gambling on. And, and watching the movie, it, it in part feels like something written by, Genuinely, not just in the cynical Hollywood way of, oh, we have to make this for the 14-year-old demographic because it's the biggest demo that, you know, moviegoers are. No. Is that this true? This is written by... Yeah, most movies are made for 14-year-old boys. Huh. Is that... that I've, I've blown your mind this time? Well, no, you haven't blown my mind, but it's that's interesting It's been that way for, like, at least, you know, a good 10, 20 years. You like, see... I'm not, if you look at the patterns of, you know, blockbusters and comic book movies, I mean, most of those movies are made for that kind of young yeah, teenager Yeah, Transformers and, uh, and the Marvel movies. And the thing that Hollywood knows Superman, about that, yeah. when you're 14 years old, you like crap. I mean, I saw, oh, yeah. you know, I saw Godzilla more than once in the theater. And I mean the Roland Emmerich Godzilla. Yeah. That's my shameful admission of my life, that... Um, or the Phantom Menace, for that matter. Yeah, I, I was when I was when I was a teenager. I just I liked movies like Van Helsing, and uh, I, I well, what else? What uh, <laughs> things like uh, King, Kingdom of Heaven and Gladiator? 
Well, I know you have a lot of thoughts about Kingdom of Heaven, which we'll get into one day on Some other podcast. day. But, but I mean, as long as it had swords and, yeah. and things like that, I was usually hooked on it. Well, the thing about Jupiter Ascending is that... Okay, well, the Wachowski brothers... They, and the Matrix. The Matrix was a big part, was a big thing. The Matrix was a me. big thing. What's interesting, first of all, is that... I do owe the Wachowskis some part of my teenagerhood, I'll have to admit. For the Matrix. Well, for a lot of their work, actually, but... Uh, yeah, the Matrix well, mostly. Well, I mean, what? Well, they had. Well, well, I mean, they had the Matrix trilogy and. Batman. Oh yeah, well, they didn't do much else until I. Yeah, so until I was like in college. So yeah, no, V for Vendetta. That wasn't part of it. Yeah, I. I well, owe the, Vendetta, I owe the Wachowskis for the Matrix. I think. Yeah. I um, do owe them some sort of debt. But go oh, on. Sure. Let's go talk about Jupiter. Well, Ascending. Well, it's First of all, this is their first film that they have written, like their first, you know, quote original movie that they've written. Right, so it's not an adaptation. No, it's not, you know, because their other movies, they haven't done a lot of things. Well, they've done Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas was their most recent one, yeah. Yeah, and and then they also did uh, Speed Racer. Uh Uh-huh, and I enjoyed that a lot. I... I enjoyed it for what it was. It was a goofy you do have to block. You have to take it on its own terms, but it but it does have a uniqueness about it. It has there are sequences in that movie that I felt like I was on drugs. I felt like they were giving me psychotropic experiences where the guy's driving near the end to get to the finish line and it becomes like a candy colored techno dream. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, more power to them for that. And then, you know, they did the Matrix trilogy. Um, but this is their first movie in a while that they've kind of done on their own without, you know, collaboration. Because they did uh, Cloud Atlas with Tom Twiker and or Tickford. This movie, though... Alright, so just a really quick bottle uh, up the plot. Uh, there's this... It's basically, in a weird way, a little bit akin to Cinderella. You have this character played by Mila Kunis... Uh, this ru- this Russian girl who works... And she's like a maid. Yeah, she works scrubbing toilets, basically, or doing house cleaning. And this is not a spoiler. She, like, she's royalty, basically. No, they reveal in the trailer, uh, Channing Tatum uh, plays this uh, hunter, and God help me, I don't remember the name, but he's this guy who is, pro- is trying to protect her from this royal family uh, on this other planet... Um, it's the house of Braxis. Um, and it's like, I'll get to more of that in a second. Wasn't that in Dune? No. Dude, this movie is basically Dune. Uh. For modern day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you thought of Dune, didn't you? When I said the house of Braxis. You think of the house Arconan, right? I could have sworn there was something like Abraxas in Dune. There was probably or something, something like, like that. Or a character named Abraxas. There are characters who are dressed up. But it to look sounds like very much like a Dune name. It's very much a Dune name. And also, um, so what happens is there's this family that want to get uh, Mila Kunis' character because she's the reincarnation of their mother. And. It's really complicated. That's not awkward. Yeah, well, they want him. One of like, there's one one sibling. The woman, this woman, she tries to be friendly with her. That doesn't work. There's another brother who tries to marry her so that he can kill her and take over the fortune that she's controlling. Classic Oedipal complex. And then, and then you have the last brother. Uh, now I forget the other two actors, but the other th- act- oh, I have a feeling you can't forget this guy. I cannot forget this What's guy his name? because 
well, I actually forgot this character's name, but he's played by Eddie Redmayne. Okay. Now, if you watch the trailer... Eddie Redmayne is the character who talks like this. Some lives will always matter more than others. To a war with some of the most powerful dynasties. I want her found, and I want her dead. Owns the title to Earth. I will harvest that planet tomorrow before I let her take it from me. He's the one who's talking very softly. He's, no, the thing is, he talks very softly. Until he talks like this! <laughs> I knew exactly he would be that character. He... <laughs> That's his whole performance. If you see in the trailer, like in this in the trailer, you hear him go like, "I want her dead." No! He has your joke in the movie. He stole your joke, Andrew. And Everyone. Oh, different one. But okay. But the point is, so he, Eddie Redmayne, like the acting in this movie kind of is all over the place. Mila Kunis is there and. It feels like she doesn't really want to be there. She's kind of trying a little bit, but she's just like, I'm going through the motions. I'm being the damsel in distress. She falls off well, something and needs to be caught like three or four times. Um, Channing Tatum is there to work. He actually is putting in some effort. Uh, Sean Bean has a supporting role. He's actually really good. Eddie Redmayne is there the- acting like he's in Battlefield Earth. Oh, it's no. that bad. That's never it's a good sign. Bad. He is so over the top, but it's hilarious. It's like because he's also in the suit that is very Dune. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so you remember the costume design in that movie was also really weird. And so, you know, more power to them. Look, the Wachowskis. You know, I'll say this: the movie is actually kind of enjoyable in a sense because you're watching filmmakers who just do not give a damn. They have been given a budget of 175 million, and they're going to do what they want with it. Right. You know? Which is kind of, in a way, sort of refreshing, even though you, you're kind of like, couldn't you have focused a little more on the story to make it coherent? And there are passages where characters are explaining and explaining things. And it's a two-hour movie that feels like it's longer. It feels like a cut-down four-hour movie. I remember watching Cloud Atlas <clears throat> in the theater, and I, and, I, and I felt like that was a very long movie. But that was only because it had around five different stories in it. All of which yeah. were reasonably entertaining. Yeah, uh, that, that movie... Um, there were times where the quality was not great um, in terms of makeup or performance, to say the least. Uh Tom Hanks Cockney accent, but um, but but the thing is, but though, the thing was, they were so much when they are were when they were great, they pulled off some really beautiful, entertaining, like really almost awe inspiring filmmaking. So the quality in that movie ranged a lot. I read in the in the review on RogerEbert.com for Jupiter Ascending, they were talking about the Wachowskis' previous pro- projects, yes, and especially Cloud Atlas, which said which was taking a lot of cues from uh, Intolerance by D.W. Sure. Uh, Griffith yeah, and the, got the, astoundingly close yeah, to that. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, and I, and, and uh, that's that's a very bold claim to make, but yeah, it certainly was in there. Yeah. And now they go from Cloud Atlas, which was you know very entertaining and, ver- and very well made, 
to uh, Jupiter Ascending, to Jupiter which Ascending. is basically a mashup of Star Wars, Dune, also The Matrix, because there's a whole element. All right, now uh, one other quick thing I should mention is that, like they explain that Earth is not how we think it is. That uh, you know we're our you know, own unique species on Earth. No, we're kind of meant to be grown and used as energy sources and when the oh yeah that's not up, derivative of anything no that doesn't sound like the matrix at all oh no no it's not like how in this movie human beings are used as energy sources for other alien beings sound familiar um at least in the, in the matrix it kind of made sense no but there are just there are so many weird things there are things though that are very funny this will there are things in this movie that will make this a cult film for years. For one thing, okay, there are telepathic bees. There, see? Yeah. There, there's a scene where... Doctor Who did that, actually. Did they? Kind of. There, it was like towards the end of David Tennant's thing. Like, the bees knew that something bad was going to happen to Earth, so they left. <laughs> so... Were, were, did, were they Nicolas Cage bees? No. Oh. But, uh, but like, the bees know that Mila Kunis is royalty, so they don't attack her. Instead, she can kind of control the bees, and they flow around her. Well, that's not bad. I, but it's just, like, watching the scene, though, I was watching and thinking, the, not so much I was impressed by that, but I'm like, how did they do this scene? They have all these bees around here. How are actors not getting stung left and right? You, you know there's such a thing as CG, right, Jack? Yes, but these bees did not look that CG. Okay. They had to be that more. So she's like a candy man. Yeah, a little bit. So Jupiter Ascending is, you know, again, it's got... The action, the thing is that the Wachowskis haven't lost their touch when it comes to action and special effects. The movie looks gorgeous. The movie cost $175 million, which, you know, Grant, you, know you could say... Which for a blockbuster is kind of conservative. Um, that's pretty high. Well, I mean, million, that's a pretty that's around the ballpark of what block big blockbusters are now. Okay. But uh, all right, never mind what I just said. Screen. You can see there's a lot of unique designs. There are um, you get to see like alien lizard men, so that's kind of cool. And, not, and they fight at one point. All right. There are also little weird things like Terry Gilliam pops up in a scene, <laughs> and he play, he plays. There's a whole montage of Mila Kunis having to become registered as a queen. And it's like she's going to the DMV, <laughs> and it's like filling out paperwork level Jeez. after level. And Terry Gilliam is one of the people there, and uh, it's pretty glorious. Like All that's right. so. Would uh, I recommend this movie? I don't know. I I honestly don't know. I think so. Well, I, I would say that if you went to see it, I wouldn't stop you. But it's not. Well, oh, you can't stop them, Jack. No. Well, I. Well, apparently I don't even need to have to. It's kind of bombing. Oh. But it's it's a unique effort. Like I I'm a very I'm fascinated when filmmakers make follies like this because it is kind of a folly, but it's a glorious folly. It's not for example, it's not like a battleship or it's not uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> It's not uh, something along those lines. It's not like a piece of hack work. It's something that you could tell these filmmakers cared about what they were doing. And they might have mucked it up, but at least we have something out there. 
And it might be sad for other filmmakers who want to make something of this grandeur that's not based on a property. So, yeah, is that a problem? All right, so let's go on to your next movie. Well, I want to. It's a good thing you mentioned the Wachowskis because I think this really nicely dovetails into uh, my next my movie, which is Snowpiercer. Mm, yes. And I remember, I thought as I was watching Snowpiercer, around halfway through, I thought, this is the kind of film that the Wachowskis would have tried to make back in their heyday. Possibly. I mean, it's, it's adapted from a graphic novel. It's about uh, a kind of post-apocalyptic society yep. where a leader has to lead the dregs of society all the way up to the front. And right. a kind of sci-fi, but, uh, but otherwise... Uh, it's dystopian. Yes, it's dystopian. And you lent me this, and I watched yeah, it. Yeah, I, I lent it to Andrew uh, in large part because uh, this this was actually my number one film of the year for quite a while. I loved this movie so much. It like, And in some ways, it's hard for me to explain exactly why. Like, if you pick apart certain things with the mecha- like the mecha- just the mechanics of the train... And how it keeps moving. You can kind of think like, hey, how is it doing that? How is it going for that long? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I can't carp. You know, I I watch it and I'm so invested in the characters and the action and the stakes um, in this guy's quest, uh, Chris Evans. But why don't you tell them... All right, first of all, this is probably going to be... This is going to be spoilers up, up to your neck. So let's get that out of the way. Because I don't think we could talk about this without talking about the end. No, this isn't like Jupiter Ascending where, you know, screw the plot. Alright, so, spoiler alert, here we go. I I was thinking, I don't usually like post-apocalypse stories. Uh, bec- because they're kind of depressing. <laughs> and if I, uh, I wanted to see if what this movie would, would give me. And the thing that it d- did was, you know, it's kind of snowy outside, it's really freezing cold right now. But but when you watch a movie like Snowpiercer, where all of humanity is basically contained on one train while the rest of the world is frozen, uh, you get to you get to leave the movie and go outside and uh, appreciate that everything's still alive. Yes, exactly. I love that feeling. But the movie is still really entertaining because a uh, Chris Evans gives his best performance ever. I would totally agree with that. And I and it's funny because when I saw him in Captain America 2, I thought I'm seeing someone I'm liking him more in this movie for some reason than even in the first Captain America. There's well, the ca- about... first Captain America wasn't particularly well written. No, and he didn't have much to work with he... other than, you know, his own charisma. Chris Evans needs, you know, well he needs really good material and he also needs other good actors to play from as well. You know, like, in the thing in Captain America 2 is that, uh, you know, you have that character who but he is all... really stuck in the middle of uh, modern paranoia and, uh, you know, all that intrigue. Right, but he also, but in Captain America 2, he had Samuel L. Jackson and Scarlett Johansson to play off uh, of, and, uh, you know, a really well-written script. Uh so yeah, he got more of a chance to shine more. The only other significant person who was in Captain America was Hugo Weaving. I can't even remember anybody else who was in that. Yeah. So uh, what? What's her name? Who plays Agent Carter now? Uh, Haley Atwell. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the. First but I mean, they they barely just, interacted. Yeah. So the point is though, but now in Snowpiercer, 
you got John Hurt, you got Octavia Spencer, you got Tilda Swinton. Uh, who? Pr- I'm sorry. Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Oh who, man, Tilda who, Swinton. Oh, I love Tilda Swinton in this. And there's a great moment in the middle, like the scene that really sticks out to me in this in this movie is the part where they get to the school. Oh man. And... Oh, that scene. <laughs> Swinton, she's this very, she's very much, she she works for the government of this train, and she, she she completely, well, no, she's not the teacher, there's another teacher there, but she's like a government official. Oh, not Tilda Swinton, I'm sorry, I'm forget, I'm confusing her with the other, yeah, Allison Pill. Yeah, and Tilda, and Tilda Swinton, like, as you meet her, she's giving you the speech about why, uh, about why it's important to keep your place. She says, be a shoe. You oh, wouldn't yeah. wear a shoe on your head. Well, that's be a shoe. In the movie. Right. And you're kind of like, is she serious? But you realize, yeah, she's whole she wholeheartedly believes in this whole thing. And then they take her prisoner later on and they and they go to the middle of the train, which is this kindergarten. Yes. And you realize why she is the way she is, because all the children of the upper class people in this train are given these are given this propaganda about why the train is so important. And she's been indoctrinated. Like, Right, she's been indoctrinated. And then they sing that song, What Happens If We Go Outside? We We all all die! die. (laughs) We freeze, freeze, freeze. And she's singing along and she's so happy. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, she's kind of cute. She's twisted, (laughs) but she's kind of (laughs) cute. She's cute in her mania. I bet Corey loved her, didn't she? Oh, she loved the whole movie too. I know, but I th- I would if I were to guess her favorite scene, it would probably that be was that. That, that. Yeah, we both. Yeah, that scene was just tremendous. Yeah, uh, because there, you know, there's that scene also has like a very darkly comedic element, which oh, the payoff of that scene is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, very violent too. When they when they finally realize no bullets are not extinct. <laughs> uh, yeah. One other thing about this. And movie. they kill a pregnant woman with a knife to the neck, a throwing knife to the neck. Yeah. And I. <laughs> that doesn't happen very often. No. The thing about this movie too is, uh, well, it was directed by the South Korean director Bong Joon Ho. Yeah. And he has done. He's probably. And it's interesting that Ch- Chan Wook Park produced the movie, so you now, have let the me, two best directors. Let me in ask South you a Korea question: today. Did Chan Wook Park act in this movie? I don't think he's an actor. Uh, okay. No, are you thinking of the Korean guy? Yeah. Park, no, no, he's not the old boy guy. That was not the guy from Old Boy. No, wait, hold on. But he's you. Maybe you're thinking he was he in the host? Maybe. I, I mix up. I Never mind. Uh, but the guy uh, who talk the about guy Bong, Bong Joon Ho. Well, Bong Joon-ho, um, well, you might know him as well from making the monster movie The Host, and uh, which is a, that's a movie that's a lot of fun. 
Uh, I've seen the beginning of the host, and there's. You've never seen the whole movie. No, uh, but Ooh. I I got up to the part where like the whole family is falling down crying. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was just like. I know this is a tragic scene, but I just can't help laughing. Yeah, no. It... <laughs> he somehow rings this weird sort of humor out of these sort of dark moments, and you don't feel bad because they don't feel dark. No. And that's kind of it... what that kindergarten scene is. Exactly. He has a really great grasp of making the dark scenes really dark and really visceral, but also finding a lot of dark comedy in there. He has a wry sense of humor. No, really, yeah, exactly. That, and, that really comes out well in uh -huh. his films. And going back, uh, actually, one more tiny thing with Jupiter Ascending, uh, if you notice, John Hurt's character is named Gilliam. Oh, really? And so the movie... I'd I forgotten think, his name by now. Yeah, well, I remembered it because it's like, that's an unusual name for a character to have, except, oh, no, wait, obviously... Uh, Bong Joon-ho's Watch Brazil. He's obviously a big Terry Gilliam fan. Yeah. This has a bit of the air of, uh, like, 12 Monkeys, maybe. Um, yeah, and it's just... that It's just a crackerjack dystopian movie, which, you know, you have to buy into the metaphor of the train. That it's about, you know, again, we've seen this kind of story before of, you know, the have-nots are going to try to take over the haves. I mean, that goes yeah. back even to Metropolis, um, if you think about it. But let's get back into some of the other influences, because let's think about a very unlikely inspiration for this movie. Well, shoot. Atlas Shrugged, which uh, is about railroad tycoons yeah. who oh. have an, uh, a, a uh, what is that sort of Randian philosophy? Well, maybe not even, well, not so much that. How about, but to make it more modern, Bioshock? Yes, that Bioshock came to mind instantly. Yeah, because it's this man who takes who takes uh, all this see, business like, man. See, I don't like to bring up Atlas Shrugged because I. I'm not uh, saying that the movie Atlas Shrugged <laughs> inspired no. this because I would hesitate to say that the movie Atlas Shrugged was even seen. But the sort of <laughs> idea of making this dystopian story that has all of these rich ideas about society and how we function. Uh, together in terms of being a group, in terms of being a leader, uh, how to follow things, how to have innovation. What is that? What is the name for that a sort of philosophy? Is it object objectivism? What is maybe it? I, this, I don't know. Some of like, those but terms. but that's essentially what it's about. Chris Evans fights his way to the front of the train, where yeah. Ed Harris <clears throat> reveals to him. The entire reason why he has been able to fight to the, this train, and in a sense, it becomes a very violent version of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as yes. as soon as Ed Harris said, yes. I, "I'm getting too old for this. I want. I need someone to take my place." And I'm like, "This was just Willy Wonka, but with blood. <laughs> <laughs> lots of blood. Lots of blood curdling violence. I mean." Uh, the thing that I when I bring up Chamu Park as well, I mean he's the director of Old Boy, yes. and that sequence where Chris Evans and his group have to face off against uh, all the the men in their SWAT outfits. Yeah, that that felt like Bong Joon Ho went to Chamu Park and was like, "All right, man, I gotta try to top your hallway fight." Well, it's it's basically <laughs> the same idea, because you have this very narrow space of a train car. Very claustrophobic. You really don't know how this is going to turn out. Um, it could get extremely bloody. Um, 
Now, I have a quick question. Do you think that it was plausible that um, that they could have gone outside? What do you mean? At the end. that like Because like the... the the, the Korean guy, the one who's doing all the rocks, but he's not really because he's creating his explosive. He's really trying to plan to break outside, to go outside, because he sees the airplane and he thinks, okay, now I can go outside. Things are starting to warm up a little bit. Maybe there's a chance for humanity outside this train. Well, he was talking it about... like a very bleak ending still, even though you have the sort of triumph of the train ending. It felt like... A, Still a, a pretty bleak ending, which is what part of what I loved about it. Well, there was there was a there was a tangible element of hope in that. I mean, he, he the the character what's his name the Korean guy. Uh, I, I gotta look it up. All I, right, uh, name, you look it up. But he's talked. But phone. all throughout the all throughout the fight to the front of the train, this guy is looking out the window and talking about what he sees. Oh, when they go over the bridge, he sees the plane, which yeah. is sticking out more and more. That's one sign. And then he sees the snowflake come in through the window, and he's, and he's talking about that Inuit lady who went outside the train and who got frozen, who they see from that kindergarten window. You remember that part? Yes. He, he said, that woman in the front it was an Inuit who taught me out about all the different kinds of snow. <clears throat> and he sees that snowflake, and he's like, oh, this is a different kind of snow. And then he says to Chris Evans, uh, and I saw something else, it's probably too crazy to mention, but it was probably, he was probably talking about that polar bear. And uh, just for the record, the actor was named uh, Kang Ho Sung, and uh, his character was Min Su. Min Su? That's what I have here. How do you spell it? M I N S O O. Okay, Minsu. Minsu Namgun. We'll call him Minsu. There you go. And uh, but he has, when he lays it out at the end, he realizes he has reasons for believing that things are changing outside. And then at the end, when we see that polar bear, we realize life outside is not extinct. No, no. It's and just, that's it's just, it's a hopeful just... thing, because the whole thing that brought this about was the world cooled because of a chemical, and now it's not as cool, we realized, at the end. So there sure. is hope that things are going to change, and there, there are hope. survivors. Well, there's the two of them. We know there are definitely two. Yeah, we don't really see anyone else from that train crash. There, it was possible. Maybe. Unlikely, but, you know, there were lots of people on that train. Like, maybe two or three or five people survived. But still, they're... they're they will be able to survive out there, possibly. It's, you know, it's up in the air, but, you know, there's more hope uh, at the end of that than, you know, the alternative, where Chris Evans becomes the leader of the train. That's true. That's true. But uh, but the point is, though, you all should check out this movie. This, this was one of the... To me, this was one of both the super high points of last year and also, in a way, one of the tragedies of movies because Snowpiercer... Oh, there was a kind of a whole backstory that I read about, and I don't know how much of it is true, obviously, but the movie was picked up by Harvey Weinstein, the Weinstein Company, yeah. and he originally wanted to put it out, you know, pretty big, but he told the director, all right, I have to, you know, I think I want to change some things in your movie. Some things are a little too out there or too wild for mainstream audiences, and the director was like, no, I don't want you cutting my movie. That's already played in South Korea. It's a huge hit. And so Harvey Weinstein said, all right, I will release it on five screens and, you know, do the rest on video on demand. And apparently it was part of his experiment to see how VOD would work in terms of releasing such a movie 
on VOD, and I don't know, maybe it did well, but it just... This movie should have been on a thousand screens. I remember... Chris Evans could have helped sell it. He I mean, really could have. I mean, he was in... up uh, At that time, this movie came out July 4th weekend. You had Chris Evans, who had been Captain America, which at that point was like... Made, Captain America 2 was very well reviewed. It was very well reviewed, and it was also... Made a lot of money at the box office. Made a lot of money at the box, box office. office. Um, like, this... This would have been the counter-programming to Transformers. Because, you know, all you had that weekend at the box office was Transformers. So people didn't know any better. They're like, all right, I'm going to go see this. Well. And Mark Wahlberg. I mean, yeah, it's a huge property. Transformers was going to crush it. It would crush it, but then, but at least it would have stood maybe a chance if you put a big action movie with Chris Evans up against it. Or maybe at some other point in the summer. I don't know. But to me, this was... This was one of those movies where I, when I came out of the theater, I was like buzzing. I, I felt like, oh, I've, I feel like I've witnessed some art. Yeah. <laughs> action, you know, genre art though. Yeah. It was an act. It's an action movie with a fascinating plot, a great setting, and it has characters you actually care about. Yeah. Which it, is more than I can say for any Transformers movie. Yeah, and Transformers I, will be my favorite whooping boy. I know, but Snow, that doesn't mean that Snowpiercer uh, it just looks great by comparison. Yeah. No, it, it's a class A action film. It's a class A action film. I think part of it too is that my disappointment for Bong Joon Ho is that this should be the movie that gets him to make like that huge big budget movie. Like he should be making like a Marvel movie after this, and who knows if he will, but. You know, this was kind of like his calling card for, you know, mainstream movie making. Even though he's done The Host, you know, that was a little bit more of like a niche movie in a way. I don't know. Like, people who've heard The Host and seen The Host love it. But Snowpiercer, you know, you have more of an American cast and stuff, so... This should lead him to something bigger. I hope so. Uh, with a widespread release. So, anyway, let me move on... Uh, to something a little different, and I'll try to talk about this not too, you know, not for too long. But uh, I saw a movie again that uh, talking about action stuff. But this goes back to the '60s. Lee Marvin is Walker, the hunter, and the hunted. You ever meet Walker? He makes my flesh crawl. <laughs> what do you really want? I, I really want my money. I want my 93 grand. I want my money. No. Okay. This movie stars the one and only Lee Marvin. Lee mother flippin' Marvin. I watched another movie with Lee Marvin uh, that we'll talk about later, but go on. Interesting. Interesting timing. Um, this was... I saw this, thankfully, because they were doing a retrospective of uh, John Borman movies. And John Borman, he's also done Deliverance. He did Excalibur. He's done a lot of movies. Oh, I love Excalibur. Yeah. He has a, he has a new movie coming out this month as well. 
in theaters. Uh, but the thing, Point Blank, um, is an adaptation of a book by this guy, Donald Westlake, uh, also known as Richard Stark. Uh, the series uh, with the father character. of Tony Stark. If I'm, well, hopefully. No. <laughs> Stark, there's, you can have other people named Stark in the movie. Maybe. All right, but anyway, it's about this whole series of characters starring this guy, Parker, who's like the super professional, badass uh, uh, criminal who, um, uh, in this movie, uh, he pulls off a heist with this guy, played by John Vernon, and uh, John Vernon double-crosses him at the last minute. He kills him, and he's supposed to pay Lee Marvin his share of their robbery, uh, which is $93,000, and, you know, he, he leaves him for dead in Alcatraz prison. Like, they're actually pulling a heist at... I don't know why they're, there's some heist going on at Alcatraz prison. It doesn't matter. Uh, point is, Lee Marvin resurfaces uh, sometime later, and, uh, you know, he's out to find out what happened to his money, and he's out to get it. Uh, oh, this was the movie that got remade with Mel Gibson, called Payback. It did, and it also... I have seen, like, the second half of Payback. Yeah, and then Jason Statham played sort of the same character again in this movie, just called, uh, Parker, which came out a couple years ago. Um, I, uh... This movie is extraordinary. This was a movie that it came out in 1967, and um, I it, it, the thing about this movie is it's 90 minutes long, but it tells a really complex, fascinating story about this guy trying to get his money, but it does it in sort of a non-linear way. Um, I, it's the movie that like, you have the sort of cliche of you see a character's point of view and you see sort of flashbacks. But here, they're very quick flashbacks. You get just, like, little snippets of things that really stick out in his mind, like shards or something, that the people have double-crossed him, the the sort of moments of violence that are really striking to him. Like, he comes back and finds that his wife has, uh, you know, left him for this other guy. But then when he comes back, now she's on her own, and there's a lot of desolate feelings and uh um but then you know one by one he goes after the organization you know which is like a criminal outfit and it's just a it's a badass movie man this is like this is the kind of movie that you know like how they say with men's movies you know we'll put some hair on your chest uh this is that kind of movie it's you know because lee marvin is just this kind of guy who um he the, not that he has he has actually a little bit of vulnerability to him as well that you if you look really closely you can see, but mostly he's just that guy who shows up in a room, and you know you don't want to mess with him even though people do, um, <laughs> like and there are just so many great moments some funny moments too like he wants to get information from this uh, sleazy car dealer so he goes out to do a test drive with him in his car. But, like, he's driving and sort of takes over the reins and is bashing the crap out of the car with him in the driver's seat, trying to get information. Like, as he's driving, he's like, where's Rags? And he backs up. And he's like, where is he? And then he drives forward. Again. Where are they? Yeah, pretty much that. Only, you know. Only less silly. No. Yeah, <laughs> much less silly. It's Lee Marvin. Um, really innovative editing. Really innovative camera work. 
Um, you know, to give another idea of how badassly Marvin is and like how stoic, like a tree trunk he is, Angie Dickinson is in the movie, and there's a scene where uh, he's sort of pulled her into this uh, like honey pot, this sort of scheme that he's doing, and she gets really mad at him and is like beating him up, like you know, pounding his chest, and he doesn't flinch a bit. He's just there, like, uh, you can hit me all you want, I don't care. Um, <laughs> and um, it's it, for its time, too, I mean, people give a lot of credit to Bonnie and Clyde being this real groundbreaking uh, action movie, uh, 1967, it broke over the doors. <coughs> this movie feels like the B-side to that, but almost better in a way. Uh, it's like it doesn't get the credit because it didn't make as much money, it didn't do this or that, but... I uh, I adore this movie. And seeing it on the big screen, it was just uh, a thrill. Alright. Good. I take it you read well. It wasn't a reading, it was a performance. Brilliant, vivid, something made of music and fire. How nice. After all you've said, don't you know that part was written for Margot? It might have been 15 years ago. It's my part now. You're quite a girl. You think? Oh, no, uh, very good. Have you yeah. seen that before? No, and I had no idea what it was about. I went into this co- totally blind, which mm. I just love doing sometimes. Yeah. Bay uh, Davis. I didn't realize until midway that it, uh, it was Ann Baxter as the title character, uh, and I and I finally recognized her because she was in the Ten Commandments, which was one of my favorite movies as a kid. Who was she? In she that? was she was uh, the princess okay. Nefertiri. Okay. Yeah, and and she sounds exactly the same. I was an idiot for not realizing it, but it's it's kind of it was kind of hard for me to get into because it's very much about the theater, and it feels like a play sometimes. Well, I, well, I remember you saying once you hate the theater. I do hate the theater. Uh, not, which doesn't mean I hate this movie. This was actually a very good movie, and as it slowly developed, I got more into it and understood kind of what it was about. But I don't really think I can appreciate it because I really just don't have much experience with, you know, with theater people. I, but these. <laughs> well, but you know, ultimately, I mean, you say theater people, they're still they're actors, they're actors, you know, they're writers, they're they're, they're creative people. Yeah, but it's not like. Uh, yeah, I guess you do have a you do have a point where it's like creative people are creative people, yeah. and, and and they have all these their these hangups and insecurities, mm-hmm. and the way Eve <clears throat> insinuates herself into the lives of all these people and becomes a sort of parasite is is kind of uh, is very intriguing. And, yeah, I remember also uh, George Sanders stood out to me in the movie too. Yeah, in part because he has a really distinct voice. Well, he's always distinct. Well, like he's Shere Khan. He's Shere Khan, and he was also in Rebecca. Uh, he was Rebecca's really? cousin, who she was having an affair with. Wow, I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, I've seen I've seen uh, I've seen George Sanders in a fair number of things. But... Yeah. Oh, and uh, the Village of the Dam, the original. Okay, well, I, I guess I will see that when I watch the movie. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but it's a very but it's a good, movie. It's an entertaining movie. Uh, I don't know if I appreciated it enough on my first viewing, but sure. it was certainly enter- uh But I, uh, I I did enjoy it for wh- for what it was. Yeah. And so uh, we'll go on to your movie. Very good. Well, all right. Well, I'm gonna do. Oh, and it was Marilyn Monroe's first movie. I'm not sure about that. Was well, it was it... one of her first. Oh no, no, yeah, yeah. 
1950, she... You, you barely recognize her because she doesn't have that distinct haircut or no. that she would have later. And uh, it's not obvious because she's in it for only about, like, 20 minutes. Yeah, uh, it was that It was that year... You see her in the... She... Sorry. Go ahead. No, no. But that year she was in two movies where she had small parts, but it's like, wow, who is this woman? And one was all about Eve, and the other was this... Uh, awesome heist flick called the asphalt jungle okay um but uh it's yeah. funny asphalt jungle was just on tcm this uh this afternoon i you I gotta watch over. sterling hayden on tv yeah i was trying to do sterling hayden for you and you don't really appreciate it no really don't uh, wait isn't he that guy who played the, the police captain in godfather yes it is all right and you he... did a good impression <laughs> <laughs> oh finally uh, you give me one you had to get one sooner or later. It's yeah, the odds I'm, of the cosmos. Well, I'm, a, well, I'm, a, I'm part of the Sterling. I actually created uh, on Facebook years ago. Uh, I don't think anybody really joined it, but I created the St- Sterling Hayden fan club because I I'm a big fan of that guy because he was in the also in the Killing. He was Jack D. Ripper and Doctor Strangelove. Right. Um, he was also in the Long Goodbye. And uh, one piece of quick trivia: he was originally going to play Quint in uh, Jaws. Huh. But. Uh, he couldn't do it because of taxes or something. Like, he had tax problems and had to, like, leave the country or something. So it was really weird. Yeah. Actually, Lee Marvin was also going to play Quinn. Or I think that was Spielberg's first choice. Yeah. So, well, it turned out for the best. Yeah, thank God for Robert Shaw. Um, <clears throat> okay, well, talking about, uh, since you brought all about Eve, and uh, let me fix your mic here for a second. Yeah. 